we put together a very, very huge, big, big business plan. But we also came up with our brand, which has evolved a little bit over time. But Love's Oven was really meant to depict that we're working with ovens, number one, but also that, you know, kind of from the heart, from, from almost the womb, we were loving, putting love into these products that we were creating. You're listening to episode four of To Be Blunt, the cannabis podcast for marketers. And I'm your host, Shada Tarabi. Today's episode is a super sweet one. I had the privilege of talking to one of the cannabis industry OGs, Peggy Moore. Peggy is the CEO of Love's Oven, a Denver-based edibles brand. And now I won't spoil the interview, but for those of you who don't know, Colorado was one of the first states to offer medical marijuana and was the first state opening up a recreational market. Love's Oven is a decade-old brand that has stood the test of time, and I'm convinced it's because of their delicious THC-baked goods and smart marketing strategy. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did recording it. Also, please take two seconds to leave a five-star review and hit subscribe so you can be first to hear new episodes when they drop. Now for the show. Well, so I have lived in Denver since uh, 1976, the, the year that I graduated from high school. I moved out here with my family and took a couple of stints away during my uh, young adult years, but ended up always back in Colorado. I love that. Colorado has a special place in my heart and I think in America's hearts too, as being one of the states that has you know, legalized recreational and medicinal cannabis and again, just cannot stress how excited I am to have you on the show because I think from a marketer's perspective, what I'm hoping our audience will glean from your wisdom and experience and knowledge is somebody who's really been at the forefront building a brand. So Love's Oven is, in my opinion, an OG edible brand. Again, I think I've been consuming your products every time I've gone to Denver over the past decade. And so Love's Oven officially was founded in 2009, correct? That is right. Yes. So from 2009 to 2020, what was the original product that you launched with? What was the impetus for founding Love's Oven? And kind of give me the brand inception story. How did you get started? Okay. Well, I cannot take credit for being the original founder. The original founder is a friend of mine. Her name is Tamara. And she was one of the uh, very first people to secure a edibles license in the legal medical marijuana um, space here in Colorado. So she was edibles license number four. Wow. Yeah. So she secured that license. And at that point in 2009, there really were not a lot of rules and regs in place, very similar to where CBD, the CBD space right now. And she was able to bake cookies out of her kitchen and she was able to deliver them to, to a store down the street. So she started with cookies and they were big, giant, beautiful cookies infused with can of butter. 
So that, that was the original product. And so we started with the chocolate chip cookie and then we had added a couple of more. I got really involved in the business, although I had known Tamara all this time. She's a very good friend of my son's and coincidentally my massage therapist. Uh, I got involved in the business in 2011 when Tamara uh, was giving me a massage one day and she said, you know, I'm thinking about selling my license. Um, she was a massage therapist by trade and a lot of rules and regulations had come into the uh, medical marijuana space by then. And she needed a dedicated to marijuana commercial kitchen in order to continue to produce her products. And she didn't have the financial resources to be able to do that. So I was working for a big giant health insurance company at the time and, and had a really a long and storied career there. But I said, you know, maybe I can come in as a financial partner and just help you uh, get this build out done and get the, uh, the business jump started. Uh, Tamara, uh, it, she had two babies back to back within 19 months. And suddenly she found herself in 2013 with two toddlers trying to be the baker in a business that at that point was really a startup. There wasn't tons of cash flowing through. And she, in 2013, asked me to buy her out. So that's when I became the, um, the, the full owner of Love7, you know. But, um, you know, it was really interesting. In 2012, late 2012 is when we finished that build-out of the kitchen. So that's when we relaunched the brand. And in Colorado, um, and I'm really seeing some similarities here in the CBD space, in Colorado at that point, there were a slew of edibles businesses by then. So you think about the licenses were first issued in 2009 and they continued to issue licenses kind of without, uh, without any moratoriums or restrictions. So lots and lots of competition in late 2012. So we really had to think about how we were uh, strategically going to entered this marketplace that's already flooded with a lot of baked goods and, and many other types of edibles as well, and really differentiate ourselves in the marketplace. So the way we did that is um, we put together a very, very huge, big, big business plan, but we also came up with our brand, which has evolved a little bit over time. But Love's Oven was really meant to depict that we're working with ovens, number one, but also that, you know, kind of from the heart, from, from almost the womb, we were loving, putting love into these products that we were creating. So our, our logo really kind of helps to tell that story. And that's what exactly what we did. We had a logo, we had our story, and we started just beating the streets, feet on the street, going to every store that was out there, telling our story, making those connections. Um, it was very grassroots back then. You know, there really wasn't um, any online marketing. Um, mm -hmm. People are deathly afraid of just being shut down at that point um, by the federal government or tripping up and doing something wrong in the state size. So it really was creating the brand, mm -hmm. putting the marketing material together, going out and engaging the buyers. And then at the same time, going to events, uh, some legal, some not, uh, that where we had the opportunity to tell the consumer our story. So again, you know, passing out 
stickers and, and t-shirts and just really talking to people about who we are, why we're different and why they should pick us. I absolutely love that. And I think that's a spirit of what I was hoping mm -hmm. to convey with bringing in experts like yourself to tell their stories is the reality of the work that goes in, not to deter people, but to just really highlight that there's not a, you know, snap your fingers, overnight success. I think there can be that maybe with a lot of money spent and invested, but most brands really are putting in the work, putting the, you know, boots on the ground, putting the time and the effort in. And so follow-up question to that I have for you is at that time, how big was your company? And maybe a secondary approach is how big was your marketing team at the time? Okay. Well, um, 2009, 2010, it was one person. It was Tamara. 2011, 2012, it was two people, myself and Tamara. So I was um, managing the build out of the kitchen uh, while Tamara was having uh, busy having that first baby we talked about. And then um, once we got the build out complete, we were able to, to launch operations. So, so Tamara was a baker. We had one part-time salesperson, um, a good friend of ours, Tamara, some of mine, and I was kind of the business person. So I was the person back there, you know, coming up with the marketing materials, making sure that we had all the sales collateral that we needed to have, uh, working within the confines where we could on online marketing ideas. And I engaged the help of my son. So this really has, um, Love 7 has grown to be a family business. And so I have two sons and a sister that are both partners with me in the business at this point. They became partners in 2016. But I have a son who's um, really kind of a marketing guru, probably not quite as much as yourself, but he came in and just agreed to help me for free with some of the marketing things. And um, so, so we continued... Um, you know, in that, in that vein for a while, it late 2013, let's fast forward there. So Tamara had left the business um, to take care of her babies. And then I brought in another baker. And then in August of 2013, I brought in a trained pastry chef. And her name is Hope. And she had graduated from culinary school. She had worked for Thomas Keller and Wolfgang Puck organizations in Las Vegas and just had mad skills. So at that point, we started to gravitate, uh, not away from cookies, but really started to introduce things like brownies and, and more gourmet types of things. We were doing macarons for a while. We That's where we came up with the idea with the baklava. Mm -hmm. So um, so there we were. That was myself. It was uh, Hannah and Hope. And then uh, my my son helping me. Well, of course, legal full legalization was on the radar at that point. So we knew that was coming January 1st of 2014. So we started preparing there. And we did hire a couple of other folks to help with uh, packaging and a full-time salesperson um, in addition to myself that was going out and doing some sales. And so we were up to about six people at the end of 2013 and just baking away like mad, trying to be ready for January 1st, 2014. 
And we were one of um, only two edibles companies licensed as of January 1st, 2014. And so I predicted edibles were going to be a huge thing in the recreational market. What, what I really saw is I saw, you know, couples going in and not to stereotype, but, you know, couples going in and perhaps uh, one member of the couple gravitating to wanting to smoke something and the other member saying, yeah, I don't really want to smoke anything. What, what, are, what are my options? And uh, my son was like, there's no way that's going to happen. You know, there's nobody's going to want to buy edibles. And oh my gosh, for six months, we didn't even have a chance to think about marketing much. We actually were inundated with orders. We had stores that were calling us multiple times a day, sometimes the same store calling multiple times a day, saying, we don't care what it is, what it costs. If it's on your shelf, just bring it to us. So, so those were interesting times for sure. And, and, you know, certainly very exciting times. And just to give you some perspective, in 2013, as a whole year, we grossed $50,000 in, in revenues. So that's how tough the market was. Mm -hmm. 2014, January, we grossed over $50,000. So, you know, and what a difference a month makes. So the company continued to grow. Um, we are at about 20 people right now. We've fluctuated between 35 and, and 20 on and off over the years. So right now we're a little bit down, uh, frankly, in part because of the pandemic. Um, when, when the tourist, uh, tourists were shut out of the mountains, that really impacted our business. We have a lot of business. And you talk about Pagosa Springs. We have a lot of business in the mountains. Um, so um, that, that's hurt a little bit. We had to lay off about 25% of our staff, but we hope to be able to bring those people back as, as we start to reopen here in Colorado. That's a great story just to help, again, yeah, put some structure around one, growth, two, the, the regulations that you're facing, too, with what's happening as the industry is growing, which wants me to lead into this next question around it sounds like, which I didn't necessarily know, it sounds like it was fairly easy for her to get the original license. I don't know if there was a huge line out the door. I know Texas is recently just opened up hemp licensing and there's just so many people who want to get involved. And I know that there is some sort of limit to how many licenses they offer and open up. So for her to get that original license seemed pretty easy compared to what I think you, when you joined, realized there was height and excitement in the market, but very quickly lots of, not roadblocks, but different hazard signs that you kind of had to pass through. So you kind of brought up, uh, you touched on packaging and labeling. I was reading another article that you were quoted in talking about, which I didn't realize, but I now see it as a consumer side. The shapes of gummies and the shapes of edibles had to change. I think that was 2017. So maybe give me, from your perspective, an overview of what were some of the things that were easier or harder back in the early or late, you know, late 2000s, early 2011, 2012, 2013 to maybe present where the market is much more excited. You're much more established as a brand, but the regulations still seem to be ever changing and ever hazardous. 
Yeah, the, the great question. And I'll do a little bit of compare and com contrast to when we were medical only prior to 2014 mm -hmm. versus when adult use or recreational came into play January 1st, 2014. So prior to uh, 2014 in the medical market, there, there still were not a lot of rules and regulations. They were so, slowly happening, but there was no, uh, what we call it now, seed to sale tracking, for example, where we're entering information about what plants are being grown where and then following the trail of those plants uh, ultimately to when it's sold to a consumer. So there was none of that. So it was pretty easy. We would go to work with stores and or cultivators and bring in plant material and process it and turn it into our cookies, brownies, whatnot. Um, in packaging, there really were no rules. I mean, obviously, some people were just selling cookies in a folded over bag with a piece of tape on it. Transparent, transparent bag. Um, we we were a little more trying to be a little more safe so we would you know i sealed sealed the product and sealed the bag but it could be you could see exactly what was inside of it and i think the theory was is that the you had to have a card in order to consume in the medical market so you had to go through some sort of a background check to make sure that you were eligible for that card a doctor had to recommend it so the marketplace was a lot narrower as the government started thinking about adult use, they realized we don't have a we don't have control over that marketplace anymore. So just anybody who's over 21 and can prove that can walk in and buy product. So what is that really going to mean? But adult use, you know, even though it had been voted for in 2012, late 2012, I think it still hit the regulators like a freight train. January 1st, 2014. I think they were so busy figuring out how to get uh, the framework for issuing licenses in place. A background check was a much, much bigger deal because we were talking about potentially a much bigger market and therefore a much bigger opportunity for illicit activity. Um, so they were very focused on that. And then all of a sudden we start selling products and there were some loose rules out there about packaging but really pretty loose, uh, more stringent than medical, but pretty loose. So, and then we started to see the, uh, the, the counter groups show up, uh, folks who are, were against adult use legalization. And this is when I really started to be interested in being involved with uh, the rulemaking process, starting with what happens at the state capitol as laws and statutes are written and So I, I joined an industry group. I actually had the opportunity to speak at the Capitol many, many times uh, in, in hopes of helping people understand, you know, what made sense and what didn't. I mean, we were wanting to make sense. I mean, we, we thought of ourselves, you know, more like pharma. We want to make sure that like a child can't open the package or whatnot them with just a little bit of nutraceuticals thrown, thrown in. You know, we didn't want it to go over, overboard. But so I did a lot of work in those early days. Ultimately, what happened is much more stringent patch packaging requirements came into play, as you said, in late 2016 and into 2017. And one thing we had to contend with was the lawmakers every session wanted to tinker with 
the rules and regulations that were in place. So with changes in packaging that were starting to occur, so you really had to think about your packaging stock labels, things like that, because you didn't want to be stuck with a bunch of things that you couldn't use. And then um, we also had to think about um, uh, what goes on the label. So not only were they tinkering with the structure of the packaging and the child resistant or child resistant reclosable, they were tinkering with what warning statements should be on the labels. So much so that at the end of 2017, there were so many things that were required to be on the labels that most manufacturers were just really in a pickle in terms of how to get all of that information there. So instead of like being able to fit everything on one label, people had like six labels sometimes, uh, in part because they may have had a bunch of labels printed with the original information that they thought they had to have there and rules came along and that changed that. So you can imagine when you think about things from a marketing perspective and you're trying to present this brand and keeping it true to what it is, when you have a package that might have six labels on it, that really distracts from your branding, right? But um, one of the lessons that we learned very, very quickly was, number one, bring our own labeling in-house. In so we bought a label printer, and labels and we were responsible for the content on those labels and we could change on a dime so if we needed to reword something we had the capability to do that inside so that that was um that was a huge game changer for us for sure just having that control over the content and i think in the cbd space we're going to continue to see that as well because you'll have your state government and the federal government now Mickey Mousing around with things, right? Oh, so. they're Mickey Mousing around a lot in <laughs> Texas right now. I don't know if you know this, but Texas, so hemp was legalized federally in 2018, statewide 2019. They said we could grow. They just, like I mentioned, released licenses in March of 2020. We've been selling industrial hemp flour out of our retail location. I also sell it on my website and I ship nationwide. It's crazy because I'm sure you've seen industrial. It looks and smells just like marijuana. But yep. of course, it's the trace amounts of THC. So you have all these things. It's like, it's legal. You're gonna, we're going to let you grow it. But then part of, we have a department called the Department of Safety and Health Services. And that department recently in the past six months has taken it upon themselves to reinterpret the law. And the mm -hmm. law was written very loosely in Texas. It says, legal consumption of hemp and so consumption what is it smokables is it digestibles is it edibles is it a sublingual oil and so right now we're having a big fight i should say um open for comment for consumers and people in the industry to rebuke this department because they're basically trying to say industrial hemp can be grown in texas but not for smokables and then retailers cannot sell smokables but i can sell every other you know, type of product, but it won't be illegal in Texas. You can still buy it and possess it in Texas. It just cuts out Texas business owners from one, keeping that profit in the state and putting it back in the state and two, mm -hmm. just yeah, miss revenue opportunity. So yes, CBD in <laughs> Texas, especially. So that's why I'm excited too, to have these conversations because I think there's a lot that we can learn. And even you just talking about labeling, that is, I think a big thing that 
I was going to ask you, is it over? Do you, you know, do you feel like it's over that you're having to kind of, you know, dodge and weave these different regulations when it comes to labels? My gut is no, it doesn't ever really end. So we're absorbing some of that with the CBD market too right now. <laughs> so the good news is, and this, this should be encouraging to you. We are actually on, I, I feel like we're on the other side of the curve in this topic. Okay. So we actually that it, have finally convinced the rulemakers and most of the legislators that there was too much information on the labels. It was com- confusing to consumers and it was redundant. Mm-hmm. So in the last legislative session, what they did is they actually, there were new laws put into place that said, we don't need this and this and this on there anymore. And <laughs> so now we've been in the process of redacting it mm-hmm. <laughs> from the labels, you know, and they, they, gave, they gave us six months, you know, to, to make those changes. That was the other big lesson that was learned in Colorado is that, you know, in these early days, they would, uh, you know, say, hey, we, we want to add this and we want to see it next week. And it's, you know, for a business that just, that's tough in a lot of areas. So, so uh, we've been having to still do some changes, but for the most part, they have uh, primarily been good changes. So a lot of kind of label cleanup. And once you have that cleaner label, as you know, from a marketing perspective, it's easier. You have more space to deliver your message, what you want to say to the, to the consumer. That's right. Absolutely. And I look forward to regulations, both in, you know, specific States, especially from a recreational to medicinal to CBD market perspective, but also for the benefit of the consumer, I think so much of my passion for the marketing aspect of talking about cannabis is that we really are, and it's kind of the impetus for the name, you know, to be blunt, the tip of the spear is marketing. You are the first thing that someone sees when they interact. And so from a brand perspective, what is that feeling that someone is interacting with that they read a label, they try your product, they go to their website, they read an article by you. It's what's that, you know, total consumer experience that the brand is delivering on. And I just think it's really fun to talk about it because we, through our brands, are helping connect people to cannabis experiences. And my whole thing is I would love to see us federally, recreationally, adult use, people have access to cannabis. I know Colorado has done a great job of allowing its residents to even grow plants for Mm -hmm. their own personal use. I dream of that day in Texas. And so that's really the the passion behind it all. It's, it's, you know, it's one thing to have a, a brand and a nice edible and great packaging, but it's like, what are you delivering? And it's someone to have a positive experience with cannabis. So you're delivering by baking yummy edibles for people to enjoy, which leads me to another question I have for you, especially dealing with edibles now, maybe some um, background for anybody listening who maybe isn't as familiar milligrams in CBD and THC are not quite the same. So I personally just did a post about, you know, understanding your dosage. I know with CBD, I can have 50 plus milligrams, a hundred milligrams at a time. It's not necessarily going to completely knock me out. On the other hand, I know my limit with THC edibles is 10. Mm -hmm. I don't want to go over 10 (laughs) milligrams. And I've also had experiences where I've had over 10 milligrams. And as you know, 
you can't make the edible go away. The edible, once it's in your system, it is breaking down in your digestive tract. It is being absorbed through your bloodstream. Like you are on for the ride. And so my question to you is because it's marijuana, which is your primary market and ingredient, how do you handle that messaging when someone is, you know, eating a cookie and it tastes really good and they want another one? And, you know, people, don't always read the labels. They don't always understand their dosage. So how do you handle that or market to that? Sure. Well, so um, another thing that we've seen kind of on the other side of the curve with, um, with legal adult use products are uh, lots of new consumers, right? So the people that have never tried these products before, and you're seeing the same thing in, in the CBD world, um, and of course, we encourage people to dip the toe in the water, right? So very early on, we discovered that from a cookie perspective, rather than making those big brown cookies that we made in the medical space that were, you know, and they could be up to 100 milligrams if you could figure out how to market, we said, let's just take that away from the consumer, they don't, they don't need that. They may think they need that, but they don't need that. So we started making tin, smaller, kind of famous Amos size cookies and putting those in, in a package with, you know, we hope very clear instructions that each one is 10 milligrams and the recommended serving size is 10, no more than 10 milligrams. But then we started to really take things even further. So the whole microdose, um, to, uh, with uh, a microdose opportunity in, in Colorado probably came into play two years ago. So there was one particular company that came in and said, no more than five milligrams. Our products are all going to be less than five milligrams. And at first they said in a package. And, uh, you know, I know these folks pretty well. <laughs> I don't know. You know, there's a consumers want value. You know, you, you've got your first time never used it before consumer. And they might be okay with five milligrams in a package, especially if they're a tourist, because they don't want to waste, right? But as people become more familiar with the products and they understand how their bodies react, they may want more than five milligrams in a package. So, so we kind of kept to those multi-serving packages, but we took several of our products and started turning them into microdose products. So couple of angles on this. So we have a product called a cheddar, cheddar cracker with rosemary in it. Delicious. The only savory product out there. Um, and we made those in uh, a 10 pack of 10 milligram crackers, but they're little crackers. They're tiny, um, kind of like a cheese at size. And so people really wanted to eat more than one. So, okay. We turned that on its ear. We said, okay, then we'll make it be um, 25 milligram crackers in a package. And then folks are like, yeah, but you know, we want to eat all 20. They're that good. And that's still hundred milligrams. And you and I know what that can do to a lot of people. Right. Um, and then we turn to uh, 20, um, sorry, excuse me. We turn to 10, one milligram crackers in a package. So a 10 milligram package comes in a little tube about this tall that, um, that you can purchase. You have um, 10 crackers that you can eat and it's just like 
perfect grab and go carry on a hike or something if you want a savory item versus a, a sweet item. We also do uh, seasonal products. So we introduce a 10 milligram only product every season. So, um, and we, and you know, in the, in the summertime, we do this in conjunction with pride. So that's coming up. We have like a little sprinkle brownie that we put together and it's a single brownie, but it is um, got rainbow sprinkles on the top, you know, and, and, you know, we, we market that, you know, we, we know that we have a huge, um a population here that celebrates pride and um we want to be able to serve those people and that's always that one's always associated with the charity that we give to as well so a portion of the proceeds but then during the winter months we might introduce a pumpkin spice cookie or you know so we really try to keep it keep it fresh and keep it lively but using those lower milligrams in a package to our advantage in that way so people seem to really enjoy those and, you know, they're really a nice just um, uh, point of sale purchase for, for consumers and a good product for the, for the stores to have around as well. I really appreciate that insight because one, I think it's a really good marketing tip to create different price tiered products. Mm -hmm. One, it sounds like it came out of just by nature of what the product is in the industry. You do have different levels of comfortability and familiarity with their cannabis levels personally, but also a marketing opportunity to partner with local charities or organizations to highlight certain major events in the community. You have the means, obviously not everybody listening will maybe be in a financial position to be able to do something like that. But those are opportunities where you can go create a partnership with your brand and an event or another business. And so for us at Restart CBD, in a former life, I'm a food blogger. <laughs> That's oh, also why fun. I love food. And so yeah. I'm very well known in Austin with my food blog. And we've had so much success, especially with CBD hitting the market, um, to create fun partnerships. So we have a very famous company in Austin called Lick Ice Creams. They're like, you know, 10 year generation Texans. They make excellent ice cream. It's really delicious. All you know, types of homemade from the farm type of ingredients. And they approached us because they knew me through my blog and said, Hey, we know that, um, I think it was like national CBD day was coming up. I think it's in August. This was last year. And they said, we want to make a flavor with you guys. We love you. We know who you are. We trust your product. Let's go make a flavor together. And the sidebar is the regulations of that with CBD are very all over the place. So we kind of were teetering the line of, is this legal? Is this not legal? But both parties were game for the opportunity and it ended up becoming so popular for them. They had to revise the flavor a couple of weeks later because we <laughs> completely sold out the store. It was a fun marketing opportunity for my sister and I mm -hmm. with our brand. They put our logo on the, they made pints of ice cream. It was cashew brownie dough. It was vegan because my sister and I are dairy free. So just a fun opportunity that we were able to take advantage of by partnering with another organization or brand to help highlight and give people awareness around CBD and hemp mm -hmm. in a um, more relaxing consumer experience. And so some feedback we had from people was, you know, we're like CBD and ice cream. And it's like, 
there's THC and edibles, but right. also we, we loved the point of conversation. And so we ended up having people come to our shop saying, Hey, I was at lick. I got your ice cream. I love the way it made me feel. I've never had CBD before. Now let's talk. And so I think that is another, you know, point for anybody listening, just to get creative and think around maybe what partnerships or opportunities that you can make for your brand, because it's really just like, how do you get people to talk about cannabis marketing, your brand, all those great things. Yeah, so absolutely. I wanted to ask you another question too, because I read this. I don't know if this is true or not. Um, it's a little bit of a tag onto the last question. My brain is so excited talking to you because you really <laughs> have come from the inception of the industry really and have stayed a, a key player. So I know state to state has different regulations around edibles. So I've been to Washington. I've looked for microdosed type products. I don't see as many there. Now this was maybe a year ago. So I think some things have shifted, but I know that they, when I saw their products were doing more, here's a bag of apple crisps. I remember this, they had apple mm. crisps and pineapple, dried pineapple slices, but the whole bag was 25 milligrams. So it was, mm. I didn't see microdosing of like mints, but I saw or edibles, but I saw these bags of full size serving products, which leads into my question. I think I saw you are expanding or already expanded into Florida. Is that true? It's true. Although, we, well, we have a, a very nice uh, collaboration going with uh, Truly. Okay. So they have the majority of the, um, well, the, they have 49 stores out of, um, you know, whatever it is, 250 in, in Florida, but they serve over almost half of Florida's medical market through their wow. stores. But Florida, so while edibles are legal there, they have not yet crafted their rules and regulations. Sure. Um, True Leave, who will be manufacturing our products there, is not able to manufacture our products yet. Um, they were hopeful that during this year's, which started in January for them, legislative session, that some action would be taken legislatively to compel the state to craft those rules and regulations. But I'm not really hearing or seeing anything too encouraging out of that. And of course, you know, with our present day uh, situation. I think many of the legislation, uh, legislative uh, bodies are kind of out of action right now. So not we'll moving as much. Yeah. So we will have our products in Florida and we hope that it will be one day soon. We Congratulations. Also, yeah, thanks. And we're, we're talking to some folks in Maryland uh, about manufacturing our products there got several places in California that would like to manufacture products, but California is still kind of in, a, in its infancy. Um, most companies, just a fun, interesting fact, most companies from Colorado that have expanded there are not making any money right now. So, you know, that's a real commitment to go to, to any state and say we're going to operate at a loss for a while. So we've taken the position there that if the right perfect deal comes through, yes, maybe but uh, we would, we're okay if that takes a little while to allow that market to continue to mature and move out of the shadows a bit. And uh, yeah, yeah, so we kind of keep our doors open to all those sorts of opportunities. We don't feel uh, a compelling need to expand quickly because often those things just don't work out. What's most important is, is who your partner is 
and how are they going to are they going to be a good brain partner for you um, because you 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 know that's the most important thing is that we carry is that brand and the connection to the consumer so whoever we work with in other states we want them to be as in love with our brand as we are no i think that's a great point especially if you what people don't may or may not know because it's not federally legal you cannot make a product in Colorado and ship it across state lines. Even if the state lines are touching, so California to Nevada, you would still have to set up manufacturing out of state. So it's a huge challenge, but I also think an opportunity is coming where hopefully we'll see, like you said, some of these regulations to be worked out maybe in states like Colorado who are seeming to be leading the way. And then you have states like California who have a very big market for it. But um, I do, I'm privy to, you know, just some of the, the things that are happening in that state. And so I think that's what people don't realize is right now, while we have certain regulations or certain legalities it still is a state by state county by county game Mm -hmm. i remember colorado even you probably know this the best but i was shocked i remember going to denver this was years ago i can't place the exact year and i think it's colorado springs was not recreational yet and we were coming from denver to colorado springs i had just gone to a bunch of dispensaries with my texas license and got to colorado springs and luckily i think there's like in manitow springs you could do some recreation but it was because that city that jurisdiction they have very you know specific communities that had particular you know favors or antis against cannabis and so they were only medicinal for a chunk of time and so i just think for people to realize you know it's exciting. You're seeing cannabis in the news. More and more products are hitting the market. It's creating a lot of noise, but there's still a lot of stuff that brands are working through. And I think that you touched on a lot of those sharing your story today. So is there anything that you want to add or? Well, let me just carry on on that point. Note to viewers and listeners. So if you come to Colorado and you go to Colorado Springs, you still cannot buy adult use marijuana. It still isn't. Still isn't. So you mentioned uh, Manitou Springs. So Manitou Springs, um, as a municipality, kind of broke off from the rest of Colorado Springs and really all, all, almost all of El Paso County, which is that, said, whatever, we're going to allow it. And they have two stores. Um, they are the two busiest stores in the state. Uh, Colorado Springs is the second largest metro area in the state. In the, home of military bases and lots of population center there. So uh, we love those Manitou stores. You know, we have our products in both. And not only do they serve the the community, Mm -hmm. you know, the people that live in that area, but there is a lot of, typically a lot of tourist traffic that goes up through there because that's, you know, in the Pikes Peak area and and just really gorgeous down there, as you know. Beautiful. Yeah. So Garden of the Gods is my favorite thing to look at. So yes. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to offer that little, that so, you know, we're, we're working on them, but you know, they're very, very conservative there. Yes, that's right. No, I appreciate that. I think you, like I said, you've given us a lot of the history, which is really nice because 
from my perspective as a brand, I feel like I've done a lot and I've only been in business for two years, but especially in a market like Texas where cannabis is in the stage that it's in, we are, you know, some of the leaders driving this conversation. So to be able to talk to somebody again, from a brand that I really respect, I do truly love your products. I love what you stand for. I love how passionate you are about being involved. I think that was another thing I didn't touch on too deeply, but just to highlight for the viewers and listeners, you know, it's the green rush. Everybody wants to get into cannabis. It doesn't sound like it was, you know, maybe your big dream to go and create this business, but you found yourself in it and, and you clearly love it. From my perspective, I, I really grew up with this plant. It's been something that I choose to consume over alcohol or other vices. And it's important to be involved. And so for everybody who sees dollar signs on this opportunity, that's great. If you have a good business idea, I'm sure you can make some money from it. But I think to really stand and create change, it involves getting involved. And so I loved hearing that you said that. I know that you founded an organization that, I don't know if it's still active or not, but that is very in line with helping with the packaging and labeling. And I just think those are really important things for people listening to figure out what are your state organizations? What are your local organizations um, in Texas? And I'm sure Colorado, of course, has it as well. Normal is kind of the main advocate nonprofit group that I see and that I'm a part of, but different counties, different states might have different organizations. But I think that's a really great thing to highlight. It's not just I'm running a business. I hope some other people go make change. It's I'm running a business and I want to be involved and help shape that conversation. So I just really admire that about you. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. And I think, you know, even if people are primarily interested in the, the marketing aspect of this, there, there are things that can be done legislatively through rulemaking that help support our marketing efforts. So, you know, don't think just because you're not baking the cookies or <laughs> growing the plant that you shouldn't be involved. I mean, you know, it takes it takes not just a village, but a whole community of us to really uh, continue to, to further things along in the cannabis space. So whether it's CBD or whether it's, um, you know, THC based cannabis. So, um, you know, don't be afraid. It's actually kind of fun. I was really scared the first time I had to testify, but, but um, these people really want to hear from you. And generally speaking, they don't have a whole lot of information already. And so, you know, some of it is just teaching, you know, and talking about common sense things. So sharing your personal story, which you can yeah. do so well. Oh, thank so thank you for being on the show, Peggy. Do you have anything you want to add final thoughts? I'd love for you to share with the audience, how they can find you or connect with your brand and maybe some of the top dispensaries that you're selling in Colorado for anybody who's in the area or making Absolutely. a trip there soon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so for the, for the baklava, I'm going to recommend uh, your favorite, the baklava. I'm going to recommend a group of dispensaries. They're called light shade. And they have about uh, 10 or 12 locations throughout the Denver metro area. And they're, they're great partners of ours and just great all, all around. Uh, very involved in the community, very much, you know, positive activism. So, and beautiful stores, a beautiful shopping experience. So, so I would recommend them. Um, I, I just, again, would, would encourage people to, if you're going to jump into this, you know, jump in with eyes wide open. Um, have a great business plan um, and 
a great marketing plan and, you know, really, you know, but do it for the right reasons, you know, under, understand, like you were saying, Shada, it's not a get rich quick opportunity. Um, it might be for a minute. Now I think CBD actually is where adult use cannabis was in 2014, lots of excitement around it, but lots of competition. You know, it, it, I can't tell you, I it, relatives, long lost relatives have opened CBD shops in Oklahoma and are reaching out to me for advice. Like, really? You guys are in the CBD space? I thought you were retired and driving around in your motorhome. So, <laughs> so just where, you know, do your research. But it really can be fun. And first and foremost, you know, our, our work should be fun. So make sure it is for you. Thank you so much again. This is Peggy Moore, the CEO of Love's Oven, a Denver, Colorado-based edible brand. I so appreciate you being on the To Be Blunt podcast today. And for everybody listening, thank you for your time. And we'll be talking to you on the next episode soon. Bye. Bye. My mind was just blown again. Every time I re-listen to this episode, there are so many good insights to be learned. Peggy is a wealth of knowledge, and I'm so grateful to have had her on the show today. Definitely check out her brand, Love's Oven, next time you're in the Denver metro area. The baklava is seriously so good. So thanks for tuning in. New episodes are released every Monday. And if you learned something dope from this or any of my other episodes, please reach out. Let's discuss. Just tag me at the Shada Tarabi to start the conversation. Thanks and hope you have a great day.